Welcome to Season 5 of Tell Me a Story I Don't Know, refreshing and captivating interviews with sports personalities and their connections to Chicago. From Mike Greenberg to Ryan Dempster, Dan McNeil to Sarah Kustak, they reveal entertaining, memorable, and emotional stories some you've never heard before. I'm your host, George Hoffman, and please follow or subscribe to Tell Me a Story I Don't Know on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Tell Me a Story I Don't Know is proudly sponsored by Vienna Beef, home of the Chicago hot dog and an institution since 1893. Find them at ViennaBeef.com. And by Dynamic Manufacturing, awarded the General Motors Supplier of the Year 23 times. They can be found at DynamicManufacturingInc.com. This week we feature Fox 32 news anchor and former sports director, Corey McFerrin. I had to think long and hard about it and and wondered, you know, if it was the right call. But you know what, what made my decision, I think, a little easier was when I looked around at the landscape and the way TV sports seemed to be going. And this would have been around, uh, it's about 12 or 13 years ago when I made the transition. I just thought the way it looked like there was less and less emphasis, less and less importance placed on local sports from the TV point of view. And I just saw the handwriting on the wall and thought, you know what, maybe this isn't a bad time to make that transition. Not many of the TV industry have been successful crossovers, but McFerrin has. Once the rock of Fox 32 Sports in Chicago, he made the transition to morning news anchor. But McFerrin, a native of South Suburban Markham, Illinois, made his mark in other towns and eventually landed a plum gig in New York. But Chicago was calling him back home where he's been now for over 30 years and since then a recipient of five Emmy Awards. So, Corey McFerrin, tell me a story I don't know. <laughs> George, good to talk to you, my friend. I, how much time we got? I got plenty of stories for you. Fine. The more stories, the better. <laughs> you know what? Let's start. Let's start early, if if that's okay with you. So I remember as a kid, just you know, like a lot of kids, you, you like sports, you like reading about your teams, but I was really into watching the news, and every single night at five and six and even ten o'clock when I got a little older. And I read all the newspapers. Of course, George, you and I, when we were kids, there were four daily newspapers. In right. And I would, I would devour every single one. Uh, and not just the sports. I loved all the news, uh, but particularly sports. And I remember even in like middle school, I would go on a, a free period or a, a study period or something, go to the library, and you'd find all the newspapers and just, you know, just lock in for a half hour or whatever you had. And uh, I also remember about that same time I had some buddies and we were really into the, remember how big high school sports uh, was back in the day, especially. Oh yeah. And the IHSA tournament. And we were just nutty about it. And we lived in the, I lived in the South suburbs, lived in Markham and we had uh, big powers out there like Thornton and Bloom. And so we would sit around with a tape recorder and do a, like a little talk show about who we thought was going to get to the super sectional and how that was going to break down and who was going to the finals for the state. And of course, there was just one class in those days. But but those are some of the early memories uh, that I had of, of just, I just knew it was something about it. I didn't know if I wanted to be a, a sports writer or a sportscaster, but I knew I wanted to do something that had to, to do with it. And I remember one time going to a Sox game with my family and I insisted on staying late because, or after the game, because I wanted to get autographs, but it wasn't just the players, they had a little parking lot 
on uh, the, the side street there at Comiskey and you could get the guys as they were leaving. And, but one of my biggest memories was bumping into Jack Brickhouse. Mm-hmm. This must have been George about 66, 67, something yeah. like that. And I thought that was so cool. And I got his autograph and I'll never forget it. And then about five years later, I'm at the stadium and we were there. Some buddies of mine were with me and we bumped into Brent Musburger. And I just thought, I just couldn't believe it. He was doing the nightly sports at that time here in Chicago on Channel 2. And uh, I thought he was the best. In fact, I, I think early on, I sort of, I don't know if I stole a lot, but I, I certainly borrowed some things from Brett Musburger as I developed you know, my own style becoming a sportscaster. But I just never forget meeting him. And the one thing I, want, the one thing I remember, I embarrassed myself because I mentioned to him, I said, you know, Brent, guess what? My middle name is Brent, and it is. So I thought that was my little personal connection. He looked at me like I was just a little off. <laughs> well, you just mentioned two names that basically inspired me as really? I was growing up. Yep, yeah. Jack Brickhouse and Brent Musburger. And I also stole from Brent Musburger, but in a way that I didn't realize, because when I went to SIU, I was doing television. But as a teenager watching Musburger, I didn't know about teleprompters. And so I'm watching him do this without ever looking at a script and thinking to myself, oh my gosh, how did he memorize that? <laughs> well, at Carbondale then, they didn't have the electronic equipment till I left. There were no teleprompters. So I would basically memorize my script and go on as if I had a teleprompter. And that was all from watching Brent Musburger. It's very odd that we had kind of similar, similar backgrounds growing up. Now, you are not the first, and I'm going to suggest not the last sportscaster to make the transition to a newscaster. And in this town, of course, we have Ryan Baker over at Channel 2. Good Monday morning. Ryan Baker here in the CBS2 Chicago studio. Just to check in as we start another week with you. Uh, we're into our 5 o'clock hour. we still got a ways to go. Going to be with you till 7 a.m. And of course, throughout the day here on CBS2 and streaming on CBS News Chicago. Why did you do this after all these years in the sports business and how's it working out? Great question. Well, speaking of Brent Musburger, he did news for a time as well, you may recall. You know, I didn't, I don't recall him doing it, but I do recall Tim Weigel doing it for a couple of years. Good afternoon, everyone. Here's what's going on at a minute to three. The president says the security of America is at stake. And therefore, Mr. Reagan today announced he will ask for another $110 million in military aid for El Salvador. Here in Chicago... Tim Weigel did it for sure at Channel 7, then went back. And then Brent did it out in L.A., I believe, at the CBS station there for a short period of time. And then eventually went back to, uh, to the sportscasting side of things. But anyway, for me, it wasn't an easy decision. I mean, I love what I was doing. There's no question about it. But they came to me, the powers that be at Fox, and said, listen, we really would like you to consider doing the morning show. And we think you'd be good for it. And I had to think long and hard about it. And and wondered, you know, if it was the right call. But you know what, what made my decision, I think, a little easier was when I looked around at the landscape and the way TV sports seemed to be going. And this would have been around, uh, it's about 12 or 13 years ago when I made the transition. So I just thought the way it looked like there was less and less emphasis, less and less importance placed on local sports from the TV point of view, in terms of following the teams, in terms of going on trips, in terms of staffing, in terms of the resources. And I just saw the handwriting on the wall and thought, you know what, maybe this isn't a bad time to make that transition. And uh, oh, by the way, I knew several sportscasters in other places 
who were taking, you know, pay cuts and all sorts of other things were going on at that time. So I thought, well, you know what, maybe this is a smart thing to do. And so I did it. And it was especially, it was especially good for me to go to the morning news first, because in the mornings, you're doing a lot of different things. It's not just the straight ahead plowing into the, in the hard news of the day. You might do a cooking segment. Corey McFerrin here from Good Day Chicago with my daughter Margaret and her good friend Olivia. And today we're going to make the world famous McFerrin peppermint Christmas ice cream. Uh, Rick Bayless might be on one day, you know. Mm. Another day you're talking uh, the economy, you're talking about business, you're talking uh, to an entertainer, you're talking to a politician, you're discussing all sorts of different things. So it was great. It was a great learning experience and I loved it. The only part of it I didn't love was the early hours. That was hard. Uh, because I'd been a night owl for, you know, 30 years before that. Basically. Well, that's what I wanted to interrupt you. I, I, I'm just thinking to myself, you went from basically doing late night sportscast to getting up at, I'm going to take a wild guess, 2, 2.30, 3 o'clock in the morning. That's got to be a shock to the system. Yeah, it was. It took a long time. In fact, I, what's, what's wild about the mornings is after a while, you get in this groove and you just do it and you do it and you do it but you don't know how tired you are. You don't know how completely messed up your body is until you get off of it. You know, I just remember going on vacations and about you take a vacation, take seven, eight days, maybe nine days or something like that. By the time you got to the seventh day, you felt normal again. Then it's right back into the shoot, you know? <laughs> oh, absolutely. I know that. Uh, I know that end of the business very well. Do you miss sports? Once in a while. I miss it when there is a big moment, you know, when... The Cubs are in the World Series, you know, when the Hawks win it all, when the Bears are relevant. Of course, that's been a while. But, um, <laughs> you know, just because you want to be in the middle of the action. Now, having said that, the cool thing about news is sports is news. And so, in a way, we're always covering the sports within our newscast. And sometimes there's a chance to interact with a Luke Canellis or whoever it might be, or, or actually jump in and, and get involved with the coverage. So, for example, going to Cleveland when the, uh, the Cubs won it all during the World Series, I recall going there for the whole week and, and being live in the mornings and, and talking to fans and, and talking to some of the players. And so there are opportunities to still kind of keep your tentacles in sports. But, um, you know, I, I feel like been there, done that, you know. Um, but I uh, trust me, though, I, I'm a sports guy. If you cut me open, you know, I, I still <laughs> open up and check out the, you know, what, what's the latest on who, who are the White Sox going to sign? Who are they trading? It's amazing. You've been with WFLD now for, uh, I think, over 25 years. But for those with short memories, and I dare say maybe too young to remember, Corey, you were at Channel 2 in starting in 1991, and you eventually replaced the legendary Johnny Morris as the lead sports anchor. I think it was a year later. You had to be thrilled, but then what happened to force you to leave there four years later? Well, the, the first part of that was even leaving. I was in New York before I came here, and I, I worked for the number one station in New York City, WABC, had a great job. We're on our way. Corey McFerrin, the fastest legs in New York sports. From football to baseball, from basketball to hockey. The only place you'll catch Corey McFerrin is on Eyewitness News, right here on Channel 7. And it was really tough to leave there because it was it was a great spot. And they even had me filling in on the weekends, on Saturdays, on the, the football college scoreboard show and things of that nature. So there was a lot of opportunity there. But 
when the opportunity came up to come home, I just couldn't resist it. You know, my family's here, my memories, my heart, and I just had to do it. And a lot of people thought I was nuts, you know, leaving the top station in New York for basically the number three station in Chicago. But I didn't think twice about it at the end of it when I really analyzed it. And I just had a baby. My son, Jack, was born. And I did not want him to become a Yankee fan, George. That was part <laughs> of it. That was a factor. So I said, let's do it. And, and so you come to Chicago and Johnny was there. Johnny was always uh, very kind to me and gracious. And, and he, the, the plan was, you know, I was brought in and he'd already expressed to management. He wanted to retire within the next two years of when I got there. Turned out he, he'd sped that up a little bit and he was gone by the next summer. So I think nine or 10 months after I got there, something like that. The Twins came to town tonight, beat Chicago 3-2, to two, so the Sox are back to three games out of first place. The Twins bagged a pair in the very first oh, inning. Kirby Puckett ripped a double down the left field line. Jerry Kutzler had started for Chicago. He was the loser, Al Newman. But um, the funny, funny little quick story about Johnny. Johnny came and spoke at my high school winter sports banquet in 1973, I believe, 72 or 3. And I was a big fan, of course. And I, re I saw him up in the podium doing his thing. And I saw him jotting down some notes. So afterwards, of course, I went up to say hi. And then I, I noticed that he left his little program on the table. I mean, he didn't care. And so as, as I left, I grabbed it as a little souvenir. Well, you know what? When I walked in the station that first day and started the job, I brought that in. And I said, Johnny, do you recognize this handwriting on this program? And he said, yeah, yeah kind of. Is that mine? And of course, he had very little memory of it, but it was kind of a neat full circle moment there. And uh, I was I was just thrilled to come home. There's no question about it. But I, I had a great time there and, and I worked with, uh, you know, Howard Sudbury and as well, who's a great guy. And we all got along. But what happened was Channel 2 was struggling ratings wise. And so there came a time there in my fourth year where uh, Timmy became available. We had a new GM. And so they brought Tim in. So he and I were there sort of sharing the load. And, and I just, I could see kind of the handwriting on the wall that I might, you know, I might not survive this because Tim is, you know, was a well-known established guy. I'm new in the market. And so it just so happened about that time that something opened up at Fox. Uh, Fox had just the year before gotten the NFL deal. And I had sort of, uh, sunk my teeth into the bears uh, pretty heavily and had gained a little bit of, you know, notoriety for that. And so they thought it might be a good fit to have me work with them. And so one thing led to another and I ended up at Fox in 95. And, uh, you know, I didn't know for sure if that was the right move, but I thought it was the smart move and Fox was coming on and became, you know, since then has become obviously a, <laughs> a much bigger player in, in the media world than they were in the, in the early to mid nineties. And so as, at the end of the day, it was a great call and I'm glad I did it, but uh, that's how it worked. Vienna beef, two words synonymous with hot dogs. They're the home of the Chicago hot dog and an institution since 1893. If you've had a hot dog, chances are it was from Vienna. And did you know there are more locations selling Vienna in Chicago than McDonald's, Burger King, and Wendy's combined? 
There's nothing like biting into a juicy and delicious pure beef Vienna hot dog, dragged through the garden, which includes yellow mustard, onions, relish, tomatoes, sport peppers, pickles, and some celery salt. And oh, those Polish sausages dripping with flavor. And look for the spicy smoked sausage available in your local retail stores. It includes a perfect blend of seasonings such as crushed red peppers and brown sugar, creating a bold and zesty taste. Vienna products are available in restaurants, grocery stores, and entertainment venues such as the ballparks, cups and socks, stadiums, museums, and zoos. Plus, you can purchase them online, coast to coast at ViennaBeef.com and on Amazon. And remember, Vienna is not just hot dogs and sausages. Look for their farm makers' chili, mini bagel dogs, condiments, and classic deli meats. Take it from a guy who was weaned on, then sold Vienna products. It's the mark of excellence since 1893. Check them out at ViennaBeef.com. Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply at LifeMD.com. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications through LifeMD? LifeMD is now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. You just take your shot. It doesn't feel like you're on a diet. What I wasn't expecting it to do was to shut off the food noise. This was life-altering, and if I can do it, I feel like anybody can do it. And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at TryLifeMD.com. That's T-R-Y-L-I-F-E-M-D.com. I'm going to get back to uh, New York and WABC in a second. But you did the tour of the country before you wound up there. You were in Davenport, Quincy, New Orleans and Denver and Atlanta before New York. I don't know if I should say nice, nice tour or all aboard. Yeah. You know, when you say that I, I get tired, uh, <laughs> that's a lot. I, I could uh, easily get a job as, as like a travel guide or something. I, you know, I, I don't know. It, ju it just worked out that way that the Davenport thing was the first, I, I sent out so many resumes and and tapes and things and Davenport was was one that sort of clicked and that was great because only a couple hours from home so that worked out and then you know New Orleans uh well, Quincy was next and Quincy Illinois George I did they hired me but they said listen we like you as the sports guy but guess what this is a small market and not only do you have to do the sports you have to do the weather as well. The weather? The weather, George. There's a story you don't know. No, you don't look like a weather guy to me. Yeah, well, but you know what was good about that is that I had, like you with, with some radio background, to get up and talk a little bit in front of a, a map where there is no teleprompter, there is no, you know, script per se. You know, it was great practice for me to be on my feet. And I, I learned just enough uh, to be dangerous, you know, you put the little plastic sun up or the rain cloud and the <laughs> cold front, and, and and it was you know Quincy's farm country, so the weather was kind of important to the agriculture uh, of in that in that region, and so they they had weather up at like six minutes after the hour, and then at twenty two after the hour, and then sports is in the middle, and there were times George, I'm up there standing up there doing the weather, and I might mention. And I'm not, actually, I do remember this as, you know, down in St. Louis wasn't too far to the south of us. I'd say tonight in St. Louis, there's a chance of rain where the Reds are taking on the Cardinals and Pete Rose is going after his, uh, 
the 34th consecutive game for, you know, with it, you know, 34 game hitting streak or something. I would just kind of lob in a little sports note into the weather. So that was fun. Uh, but, you know, Quincy, the kind of thing, you know, and, and when you're in a small market, the other people are like you in terms of age, for the most part, you're all learning, you're all kind of just figuring it out. And, you know, and you're in Quincy, you don't know for sure, George, if you're always going to be in Quincy or if you're good enough to get to a bigger spot, you don't know, you're just doing it. And, um, and lucky for me, I, I got a chance to go from there to uh, New Orleans. And that was a big market. And that was a great move. But all, all those, you know, I was lucky to go to really cool cities in St. Louis. I mean, not from uh, Quincy down, uh, down the river, actually, to uh, New Orleans, and then to Denver, Atlanta, and New York. So all of them were, I look back and just, I was very fortunate, no question. While you were in New York at WABC, you happened to be covering the Battle of the Bay. For those of you who don't remember, that was the World Series in San Francisco between the Giants and the A's when that devastating earthquake struck. Tell me a story I don't know about that experience. Well, ABC had the World Series at that time, and that's why we, as the ABC-owned station in New York, uh, got to go out there and cover it. They thought it was a, a neat thing to do. And we had coverage, of course, news coverage before and after the game, their audience would be huge. So we go out there. And uh, what I remember most about it was the night before the earthquake, a lot of us had gone out as one is wont to do at, uh, at a certain age on the road with fellow broadcasters and had a few libations. And uh, I remember getting in late the night before and all I remember the next day thinking, boy, I wish I hadn't stayed out so late. I'm really tired. I can't wait to get back to the hotel and go to bed. Well, it turned out to be like the longest day and night of my career because the earthquake, as you know, George, struck just before the game was to begin, just at the end of sort of pregame warmups. Allowing Jose Canseco to score and he fails to get Dave Parker at second base, so the Oakland A's take, take. I'll tell you what, we're having an earthquake. Well, folks, that's the greatest open in the history of television, bar none. I'm there and I, I'm standing, I had just done my live shot uh, back to New York and I look out at the parking lot and the first thing I see are the, the they had light poles out there and I'm thinking, why are the light poles moving? <laughs> and why does the entire parking lot look like it's sort of a wave? I think, am I not feeling well? Why am I not seeing this thing right? And then somebody said, you know, what's going on here? And you look up and you turn around. I remember this in my mind too. I look up and we're just right next to the park looking straight up and the, the light standards, the lights are, are, are moving in the perimeter, the lights for the ballpark, that is. Mm. And they're moving. And then the truck, I mean, this big satellite truck, you know, it must be how many thousands of pounds? And it's wobbling. And I'm thinking, and actually, I'm on the phone, oddly enough, with Tim Weigel, because I had done a live shot for Chicago, weirdly enough, for Tim and Channel 7 in Chicago that same night. I was helping out other ABC stations that day. And I said, Timmy, I got to go. There's something weird going on. Hung up with him. Somebody who, who knew L.A. says, this is an earthquake. Th this all happened in like 14 seconds, you know. And, and so I, I suddenly stop and, and, and then you just go. 
And then the players, the players, do you remember this, George? The players walked out. Uh, they didn't know what was going on. Eventually they send people home and the players walked out in their uniforms to get into their various cars and the buses and whatever. And they took off in their uniform. Never forget that. We covered the heck out of the thing all night long. And the next morning we were, we were on, uh, I remember the Regis and Kathy show, uh, Kathy Lee show uh, had us on and uh, we fed into the morning news back in New York. And, and, and the real coup de grace for me, George, I'll never forget. I am so tired. And it was just the next morning though, I'm, I'm sort of been dismissed for, for a while to go back to the hotel and maybe get a couple hours sleep. I'm walking back and right in front of me coming the other way, is ABC News anchor Peter Jennings, who I had never met. All this talk today about how well the region has done, that is to say how efficient the rescue teams have been, how good the morale of the people have been is one thing. All this talk about the resilience in the Bay Area of San Francisco and Oakland is another. But getting these two cities particularly to run at the peak of efficiency they're accustomed to is quite another. He knew me enough to say as we, as we passed, all he said was, nice job, kid very impressed and I couldn't believe it the fact that he even recognized me but apparently the night before in New York you know he had, he'd seen whatever I had done and and I that was a, maybe the finest compliment I ever got I'll never forget it. While you were in New York you also had a rather up close and in-person encounter with a very young Mike Tyson. That's right I did. Tyson had really come on uh and I don't have all the facts and figures in front of me, but he was living about an hour and a half north of New York City. So we go up there, we somehow, we, we found a way to get through to him. He had just won some fights and was getting some notoriety. And so we go up there one day and we capture him on this farm where he lived with uh, Custom Auto and his family. And, and, and we get to know him a little bit. He shows us these pigeons. Remember he had that, he was famous for these pigeons that he, he sort of, uh, looked after in those days and and so you know he's from Brooklyn he was very raw and and very young but one of the questions he asked me during the time we interviewed him and, and took video of him around this farm he says uh, hey uh I'm not going to try to do a Mike Tyson impersonation because I'd, I'd failed miserably at it but he says what do you what do you, what do, you do I'm 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 I'm, uh, I'm 19 and I I can't rent a car and I got to rent a car. How do I do that? You know, mm. he's asking me just practical stuff. And then he says, Hey, what, what, what do you do? Uh, you know, these, these girls keep coming up to me and they, they, they want to get together and they, they, you know, I don't know what I should do. And he's asking me like personal questions. It's like, ask Ann Landers. And I'm like, the, <laughs> I'm, like I'm like 29, 30 years old. I mean, I'm not much older than him. So I'm trying to give him some advice and I, I'm just like, what am I doing here with this kid? You know, did he remember the advice you tried to give him when you saw him later on? <laughs> no, he didn't mention that. He, re ah. he remembered that we had connected when he was just coming out, but he didn't say anything about that, but uh, it was, it was cool. Want to hear more great guests on Tell Me a Story I Don't Know? It's easy. Just follow me on social media, at George Offman. That's O-F-M-A-N. I'm on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And please follow or subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We return with Corey McFerrin on Tell Me a Story I Don't Know. 
You mentioned uh, covering a couple of Olympics, but uh, there was one where they almost came up with a disastrous result, and that was in Albertville, France. When you're at the Olympics, you're in a bubble, and and the the network, the first the Olympic organizing committee is in charge, but the the network that owns the the rights to the games has all sorts of rules about you can and can't do in terms of interviews and where you can be and what you can shoot and what you can show, trying to protect their rights because they don't want stuff to get out early before the network telecast. That's the main thing they're concerned about. So that's the background. Anyway, so one day I, I was there and I did, a, I did a little stand up with the speed skating behind me. And we, of course, Chicago had it's a great tradition of speed skaters. We had some, some young folks involved in that. And I did a little stand up, but the problem was behind me, I had my camera guy kind of show a little snippet of the race behind me, which was a faux pas. And, and I sent that out, you know, to my station, others, others used it around the country. And I got a call from the, the lead CBS guy there in uh, Alberville. And he said, listen, dude, you cannot do that. You know, and he, well, he said it a little more uh, strongly than that, but he was, he was ticked. And, and I said, geez, I didn't realize it, I really had shown that much. I didn't think it mattered. He said, yes, it matters. He said, one more thing like that, McFerrin, you're out of here. Well, two days later, I am, I'm waiting for Bonnie Blair. Bonnie was, was tremendous. And, and uh, she's from downstate Illinois and, and was sort of, sort of the, our main kind of local uh, star that we would cover. And of course she became a, an Olympic star winning a uh, couple of goals, at least uh, that in that particular Olympiad. Here she comes, Bonnie Blair, trying to move into the lead here. She needs to if she's to win another gold, and her time is 39.25, and Bonnie Blair has moved into the lead. She couldn't do any better. She's in first place. I'm, I'm down there waiting for her race to end, to be escorted along with a lot of other media people, sort of underneath, uh, you go down under into some little... Uh, kind of a concourse to come up to the infield where a lot of the athletes were, were gathered and, and would relax after their race. So I'm waiting and waiting and waiting. And a guy comes up to me and says, come with me. And I, my camera and I look at each other and said, okay, we'll come with you. And so he leads us down under the track, under the speed skating uh, oval. And we pop up in the infield and he says, well, here she is. I go, that is fantastic. Bonnie Blair, Bonnie. And we had done a lot of things together and it was great. And we had tremendous interview. And she had the first one she'd done after she had just raced and before she got to the podium to talk about it. And I thought, wow, this is fantastic. How the heck did that happen? So I go about my business and we put a piece together and air it and everything. And then this guy, the, the head of the CBS unit there in France calls me into his office and lets me have it. What happened was the, the, you know, the communications coordinator there at the rink thought I was the CBS reporter, the official CBS network guy, mistook me for somebody else, didn't ask any questions. I didn't ask any questions. Takes me in there. I don't know what's wrong. You know, I just said, you know, mistaken identity. I, you know, so I just did what I did. And, and so we had to get we had to get my general manager on the line and the O&O, the owned and operated uh, chief on the line to sort of defend me. And they were going to they were going to deport me back to the U.S., <laughs> now, you know, but somehow I survived and, and kept going. But uh, that was the the Olympiad. I almost got thrown out at a few minutes ago. We talked about the irascible Mike Tyson, but you also had an issue with the irascible Dennis Rodman. 
Dennis Rodman, yeah, what we all know stories about Dennis Rodman, of course, but one particular occasion, I covered him like anybody else. I didn't really know him any better than any other reporter. Um, not that I wanted to necessarily, but so the, the night, uh, gosh, George, uh, I don't have it in front of me, which one it was, but I think it was his first title with the Bulls and they're celebrating in the West Loop. And I'm there with a bunch of other sports guys. We don't know that the Bulls are there. We have no idea. We just went to this joint to have a few drinks and hang out a little bit after the clincher. And I look over and I see Rodman. And Rodman, I say, oh, God, the, the Bulls are obviously here. So he starts making a beeline for me. This is from 30 feet, 40 feet away in this bar. And I'm a little nervous. I'm thinking, what in the heck is going on here? It's coming right straight to me. And he comes up to me. And again, I, I don't really know the guy. I'm just a reporter, you know. And he comes up to me and he says, bro, you got to <laughs> loosen up. You got to loosen up. And he had that, you know, that husky kind of voice thing he had, maybe still does. And I say, okay. And he, he starts, he reaches down. Of course, he's huge, but he reaches down and starts untying my tie. And I'm going, whoa, whoa, what is going on here? But I thought, okay, I'll go with it. So he unties my tie and knots it up and throws it behind him, like over this balcony down to the next floor, you know? So my, you know, my $49 uh, Target tie or whatever it was, you know, it's gone forever. Not that that was a big deal. But, and he just says, bro, loosen up. Have a good night. And walked away. And that I was, was it. That was it. And uh, what, what a, you know, for a moment, I was a little scared. I felt like I had dodged, uh, you know, dodged a, a bullet there by it being as, as lame as it was, but uh, the whole experience. But one thing about Robin, I remember that that same year, there was a lot of discussion, as you remember, George, about chemistry. And, and you know, Rodman was, was, you know, how he was going to fit into this team from, from a team point of view. And of course, he showed up and, and did his job and, and was, uh, you know, the rebound stud that he was supposed to be. But he never really, as you know, warmed up to the other guys to any degree. There was no real relationship he had with anybody on that team, as far as I could tell. We used to have Scotty Pippen, George, on our Sunday night show on Fox in those years. And he'd come on periodically. And I'll, I'll never forget one time talking about what Rodman was really like. And Scotty revealed to me... <laughs> He said, well, to be honest with you, I've only really had one conversation with him all year. I said, Scotty, what are you talking about? One conversation? He said, yeah. I mean, we'll say hi. But one time he came back from McDonald's up in Deerfield and he had a, they gave him some extra burgers and he had a sack of them. And he said, hey, dude, you want some burgers? And I said, no, I just had some, but thanks anyway. And he said, that was our one conversation. I said, Scotty, you got to be kidding me. He said, no, that was it. That's our conversation. So uh, another example of why, you know, you don't have to have a bunch of guys, you know, holding hands and singing songs together in the locker room in order to win championships, right? No, you don't. The chemistry is on the court or on the field as opposed to it being off the field. Speaking of chemistry, you had the pleasure of teaming up with Tommy Waddle, the very talented and respected ex-bear who's really made a name for himself in the media. Tell me a story. I don't know what it was like working with him. Tommy Waddle is, is the best ex-athlete I've ever had a chance to work with uh, in terms of his preparation, in terms of his 
his wanting to be good. He, he really cares about what he does, whether it's radio or TV. And I, I had done a, uh, some things with him at, uh, at Channel 2 and then at Fox. He became our, our main guy and we were together for the better part of 15 years, really. And I just... I love hanging with him. There were times where we, we'd spend all day on Sundays, you got to watching the game, doing the post game show, preparing for the nighttime show. And one of the things that, that we did that we had a lot of fun with, you know, besides the actual on air and the nuts and bolts of the game and, and what we're going to talk about and how to get into it. And, and we had a nice rapport. And I, I, the guy, I love the guy, but what, what we used to do other things too, that one of our star producers, Dan Barilli, who is now uh, a senior uh, content uh, uh VP or whatever his title is up with the Bears now, but he was our one of our main producers at that time, and he would help us coordinate these opens for these shows, these fun little skits, if you will. You feeling all right? Not really. I got this stomach issue today. Too many fridge burgers at Ditka's last night. Yeah, right. Oh man, what? You got insurance, don't you? Actually, I don't. I lost all my money investing in the XFL. What's that? It must be Eagle Man. I've got something for you. Look at these low rates. Not that. That one. It's Bears and Eagles on Fox. And sometimes they were sports related and sometimes they weren't. And sometimes they were 30 seconds. Sometimes they were a couple of minutes. But one of them that we did that I'll never forget, we still run it or they do in, at, in, the forts, uh, in, the, in the sports department every year at Christmas is Tommy and I, the, the idea was, you know, those commercials that come on about, hey, buy this album now, you know, it's, it's the Christmas songs, you know, by Perry Como. And <laughs> Perry Como. That, that's dating me, huh? A little yeah. bit. Um, but whoever it is. And so we thought, Dan said, we have this idea, you guys will sing some songs with Bears lyrics. Is the season to fire one? Corey and Tom sing 20 of your all-time favorite Christmas songs. You better watch out. You better not fumble. You better not hold. And try to stay humble. Perry Como's got nothing on these eggnog-sipping crooners. And we'd, we'd insert names, you know, um, Wani, you know, Dave Wanstead's name was used throughout it. And we put this thing as, as if we were selling this album, the Tommy and Corey Christmas album, you know, <laughs> and it was so much fun to put together. We got so many comments on it and people would actually call the station trying to buy the album, George, which of course uh, didn't exist. No, but, but you know, I was, I was very lucky to, uh, to appear on some of those rant and rave Sunday segments. I loved it. That had a nice lifespan, and when we would, we come up usually it was three. I want to say we try to do three different uh, segments, and there were usually topics that you could go either. Right. There wasn't a yes or no answer to right, George. It was stuff. You know, what's your opinion on the Albert Bell trade or whatever it was? But we tried to get people on, and and Tommy was always the perfect foil, was he not? Oh, he was great. No, it was great. You you were the. Uh... I was You're the moderator, right? And, and we'd have the three subjects. Basically, what it was, was it was talk radio on TV. You got 30 seconds each to answer a question. Sometimes Tommy would go 45, leaving me with 15. But hey, he's Tommy Waddle. You held your own. You did. <laughs> you held your own, George. But it was so much fun to have people on there. And then to have, because that's what a, a lot of the cable TV stuff turned out to be, right? It's really radio on TV, a lot of it, right? 
with the opinion stuff and, and the way it's done. And that was just our little, I don't know, our little nod to uh, trying to get with the program. And, uh, you know, it worked, I thought, for many years. Did you know General Motors 2021 Supplier of the Year is located in Hillside, Illinois? Dynamic Manufacturing not only remanufactures transmissions for the likes of GM, but also as a state-of-the-art facility. Its capabilities include engineering new or existing products, along with manufacturing, machining, logistics, and re-energizing used batteries for electric cars and energy storage systems. I've seen their operation firsthand, and their nearly 1 million square feet of operating space is extremely impressive. Dynamic was founded by the late, great John Partipillo in 1955 and is still family-owned and operated by the next generation. For more information about Dynamic Manufacturing, visit their website at dynamicmanufacturinginc.com. Dynamic Manufacturing. Honor the legacy. Pioneer the future. So since we're in the same age bracket, which is late 30s, we're both 39 and have been for quite some time now. Yes, sir. You grew up with the likes of Bobby Hull, you know, one of my heroes as a player growing up, and Gail Sayers. Lucky, though, when it comes to the Golden Jet, because you had a very special day. On the occasion of my 12th birthday, he and my mom went above and beyond. They, they knew someone who had season tickets, and they were able to buy four tickets for my birthday. It was maybe the best birthday present ever. I had never been to a game other than standing room only at the very top. So now I'm on the blue line, right on the glass. And it was just too much to believe. I was just absolutely enthralled. I was the biggest hockey fan you can imagine. And I'm looking in front of me. They're playing the Canadians, as I recall. Bobby's right. I mean, you could almost reach out and touch him if the glass wasn't there. He winds up for a slap shot. The puck deflects off the defenseman's stick, and it it floats up in the air. I'm looking at it big as day, and sure enough, George, that thing is coming right at me, and not not hard. I mean, it's it's a floater, right? And it hits my brother somehow. We're we're trying to grab it, hits him off the shoulder, and right into my hands in my lap. <laughs> it was. I mean, it's not enough that I'm there watching the game with my family on my birthday, a place I'd never been. So you know, up so so close. And then I get a puck, but it's not just any puck. It's a. It's off Bobby's stick. It was just like crazy. You still have the puck? Sure, I have the puck. And and back in when the Hawks were en route to the uh, their, their first uh, uh, Stanley Cup of, of the, uh, you know, new era. Bobby's at an event. I've got the puck on my, you know, in my desk drawer. So I say, you know what? I'm going to see Bobby. I'm going to take this to him. And sure enough, I had him sign it for me. He, you know, here it is 50 some years later, you know, he signs it. And, uh, and it's a very nice, it's a very nice memento. And uh, it was a thrill to to, uh, to have it. And just the memory it brings back, you know, it's oh, pretty sweet. Absolutely. And then there's Sayers, but this one has a rather melancholy feel to it. Yeah. Gail Sayers, uh, again, we, we didn't have money to go to game, you know, many games or anything, but again, we knew somebody who had some tickets and what happened was once in a while in December, for example, when the weather was really bad, they might call my dad. This happened on two occasions that I remember. They'd call my dad and say, listen, do you want our two tickets for tomorrow? We don't think we're going to go, you know, because it's 19 degrees and snowing, you know, and my dad would say, 
yes, we'll take them. <laughs> you know, so one day we go to Wrigley. This is back at Wrigley. And it's just my dad and me and just thrilled to be there. And 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 Gail had a Gail had a big day. This wasn't his uh, sixth touchdown day, but it was he scored a couple of touchdowns. But I'll never forget. He had one spectacular run for a score. And my dad had just gone off to the concession stand to get us hot chocolate, you know, because it was a bitter cold day. And he's he missed it. You know, they didn't have replays. There was no screen to look at or anything. But I remember him coming back and I said, Dad, did, did you see the touchdown? Did you see the 28 yard touchdown? And he, and he, you know, he hurdled that guy and went and did the thing. And no, I, I didn't see it. And I felt so bad. I'd sent my dad off for hot chocolate and he misses Gail, you know, galloping to the end zone. So I, uh, I felt kind of bad about that. Is there one particular event that you covered that you will always remember? I could I could go to to many, but the the one I think that bubbles up first would be the night the White Sox uh, clinched their punched their ticket to the World Series when they uh, clinched it against the Angels. Ground ball to first. The White Sox have won the pennant. Jose Contreras goes all nine. And the White Sox are going to the World Series. What was significant about it is, first of all, it was, it was so exciting that the White Sox, I mean, I'm a White Sox fan, which obviously I'm not, I would never, I didn't divulge that when I was a sportscaster or talk about it much, but it meant a lot to me personally. But it meant a lot to a lot of people. And, and it was such a cool moment to interview the players. There was such excitement, first time since 59, they're in the World Series and the whole thing. And it was, it was just fantastic. You're running around getting interviews, you know, the crazy scene with the scrum around the players and the champagne flying the whole thing, and which is such a blast anyway. And then I'm on, I, I found myself on the field and there was a bit of a lull and the game, the game, the clinching game was on Fox. And so there's a, there's a big audience watching. And there was a moment there where I was, you know, how the anchors would, would, you, you talk a little bit and discuss what's going on and before in between your, your ability to find another guy to talk to, right? And I reflected about how much it meant to these players. And you could see the emotion, especially, you know, some of the, the, the guys who'd been around for a while and never made it to this point in their baseball careers. And then I sort of pivoted and mentioned, I said, but the truth is this moment probably means more to the long-suffering White Sox fans who watch this game in their rec room tonight and have been watching this team since 1959 and waiting for the next opportunity to grab the big prize. And then I, and then for whatever reason, I'm thinking of my dad. And I said, guys, you know, I can think of like my father who I know is watching this all unfold tonight. I, you know, and this, it's just sort of bubbled out. I hadn't planned it. It just kind of came out. And as I'm saying it, I get a little choked up. Hell, I'm getting choked up now thinking about it, frankly. But um, anyway, um, it was a moment there and I had to kind of catch myself as I am now and, and gather myself and, and sort of move on with it. But what happened was a lot of people saw that 
I had a lot of reaction to it and, and more so than anything about actually covering the, the game in, in a, in a baseball sense. And I, I even now get, get people who once in a while come up and say, well, I'll never forget you after the Sox, you know, uh, clinched the AL title and, and you were choked up talking about your dad, you know, stuff like that. So you don't know where, it, you know, where it's coming from, but it was partly because it was such a huge audience. Well, I remember it well because I was there and I was there with him in Houston and uh, it was it was quite an experience to say the least. So what's next for Corey McFerrin? Stay in news? Take a last stab at sports before you say enough already? Hey, George, is there room in the podcasting world for me? Sure. You know, me and about two million other people that are doing it. Go ahead. Be your guest. Yeah, exactly. Knock yourself out. Well, George, I don't know. I mean, you know what? I How do you not think about when is it over and what do you do and what does it look like? Um, the answer is, I don't know. Um, I, I like what I'm doing. I, I've got a great boss. I've got great people I work with. I enjoy what I do. And so I am, I am not uh, of the mind that I'm going to step aside real, real soon, but it's coming. And uh, I look forward to the day. And I, I talk to guys, I'm sure you do, George, who, who are scared about it because they have, you know, they have worries that they're going to be Okay, after I walk the dog and I walk on the treadmill and I watch Sports Center, then what am I doing? Well, <laughs> you know what I mean? I, I, I'm not worried about that. I got stuff I like to do and I'll be fine. And uh, I don't fear it. And uh, I look forward to whatever, whatever lies ahead. I ask this final question to all my guests, Corey. If not for sports journalism, what would you have been? I would have been a swim coach. Yeah, I, I swam. Uh, this is a story you don't know. Yeah, I was a swimmer my whole life and uh, swam in, you know, Harvey YMCA is where I grew up swimming and the YMCA swimming program back in Illinois was a big deal. I enjoyed the heck out of that and swam in high school at Hillcrest High School in Country Club Hills. And eventually I, I swam at Butler all four years. And, uh, you know, I wasn't national caliber. I wasn't ever, you know, going to get a whiff at the Olympic trials or anything like that. But I had a good experience and and enjoyed it. And I really enjoyed over the years, I worked at, at swim clubs and country clubs as a lifeguard slash swim coach. And I really enjoyed working with kids, helping them with their stroke, helping them with their mindset, getting over the nerves, which I had trouble with a, a lot <laughs> during my career. And so I, I really love that. And um, I think if, if somebody at age 22 had said, listen, I know you wanna be in broadcasting, but that door is closed, pick another one it would have been that. Well, this has been my pleasure to say the least. Our industry is definitely better off that you've been part of it. Thank you, Corey McFerrin, for telling me a story I don't know. Thank you, George, it's a pleasure. My thanks to Fox 32 Good Day Chicago, Fox 32 Sports, ABC News, ABC Sports, ABC 7 Chicago, WABC News in New York, CBS 2 Chicago, and CBS Sports for those wonderful highlights. My thanks, as always, to T.J. Reeves for being a guiding force behind this podcast, Will Hatzel for his expert editing and mixing, and Nick Tochi for our excellent graphics. And to our wonderful sponsors, Dynamic Manufacturing and Vienna Bee for their generous support. Tune in next week for another episode of Tell Me a Story I Don't Know. I'm George Hoffman, and that's all she wrote. When you need 
need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.